you know, living by faith, believing in Christ is kind of a fuzzy thing, isn't it? I mean, we think it's fuzzy. The Bible is perfectly clear as to what it means and what it is, but for most of us, whatever faith is can feel a little fuzzy and ambiguous. Like, for instance, what, is it, what does it mean to believe? I mean, what is this thing called faith? I mean, is this just merely believing in something that we can't see with our eyes? Is faith mere historical affirmation of a few historical facts? I mean, what is this thing called faith? And let's jump to the deep end of the pool. Where did faith, our faith, actually come from in the first place? What I mean is, how did we actually come to believe what we do? You see, was our faith in Christ our own idea? Did that originate ultimately from within us and our mental powers? Or, or were there other powers at work in our faith that enabled us to believe in the first place? Let's get really practical. What does faith actually look like in somebody's life? If someone's faith is authentic and real, how does that faith then display itself in real life actual situations? What does authentic faith actually look like in somebody's life? Let's get really honest. How do we know for sure that what we believe is actually true? What is the physical, the tangible, and the spiritual evidence that what we believe is actually credible and reliable and historical and even in the end, undeniable. And here's a question that maybe you've never considered before. The question is, what is the end goal and design of our faith? What I mean is, does our personal individual faith in Christ actually change anything about the world? I mean, we get salvation, of course. We get forgiveness, of course. I, I get that. But does our personal faith in Christ have any bearing on human history, the, any bearing on the world, and, and the shaping of human history? In other words, is faith just one big fallout shelter till Jesus comes? We just hide from the big, bad, naughty world until the return of Christ. Is that what faith is? Or, or... Is our personal faith in Christ one of the weapons God uses to bring the world of darkness buckling to its knees? What is this thing called faith? Because fuzzy and obscure to us, perhaps, but to the apostles, what it is and what it means is shockingly clear and profound. And believe it or not, John takes the entire final chapter of his letter to unfold exactly what faith is. What it is, what it means, where it comes from, how you got it, what it looks like, what you should believe, and how you know what you believe is true. It's all here in 1 John chapter 5. And you see, the reason why John takes the entire final chapter to talk about faith is because, is because it's related to the reason why this letter is in your Bible in the first place. And why is this letter in your Bible in the first place? And you know the issue. Assurance is the issue. Confidence is the issue for John. Not confidence in ourselves or anything we have done, but confidence that the treasure of salvation is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. 
You see, for four chapters now, John has labored with absolute precision to give us criteria, clear, concrete, unmistakable criteria to help you gauge if your salvation is authentic or if it is counterfeit. Things like truth and obedience and love. If you believe the truth, if you obey the word and you love other people, those are the signs that your faith is not a hoax, but is authentic and real. But you see, all of a sudden in 1 John chapter 5, John turns a corner, he changes the subject, and to give his people assurance, he goes a layer deeper, namely by unfolding what faith is. What faith means, what faith looks like, where faith comes from, how you know what you believe is true. Bottom line, everything you've wanted to know or needed to know about what faith is, is contained in 1 John chapter 5. Because my question is, what, what happens to a church who understands what faith is? What happens to a church who knows what they believe, why they believe? how they came to believe, the proof and evidence for what we believe and what is the glorious, satisfying outcome for those who do believe. What happens to a church who gets what faith is? I'll tell you what happens to that church. Generational impact happens to that church. Churches who get faith plant other churches that change the world. Churches who get faith pass that faith down from fathers and mothers to their children who then grow up and pass it to their children. A church who gets faith is a humble church filled with sacrificial love for one another. A church who gets faith is a courageous church who will not be bullied or pushed around by the culture. And a church who gets faith knows that is a church God uses to conquer the world and bring the evil world system crashing to the ground. So here we go. Everything you needed to know or wanted to know about faith, John is about to slice faith down the middle, open it up, and show us the anatomy and guts of what it means to believe because that's where assurance is found. Let's go to the text. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and here's where we're going if you have notes this morning, here's where we're headed this morning. I want you to see three elements. Three elements of saving faith that you must know to have bold assurance and unshakable joy. Three elements of saving faith that you must know to have bold assurance and unshakable joy. And the first element is this. Number one, the root of saving faith. The root of saving faith, which is regeneration. In other words, John is about to tell us exactly how we came to believe in Jesus Christ. He's going to tell us how that happened, because believe it or not, although you made a real conscious decision to believe in Christ, no one made that decision for you. Your faith was your own, and it was willing, and it was real. What you did not realize at the time is that probably just moments before that, before that moment that you made a choice, a sovereign miracle was performed in your soul that enabled you to believe. 
And that sovereign miracle about which I speak is the miracle of when God caused you to be born again. And that's exactly where John goes in verse 1. Look at the text. He says, everyone who believes, there it is, belief, that Jesus is the Christ, get this, has been born from God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one who has been born from him. Now what is so profound here is the logic that John uses between chapters 4 and 5. Because you remember chapter 4 is about love. It's all about love. In fact, it's one of the greatest expositions of love found in the entirety of the Bible. It is deep and it is beautiful and it is glorious. But now all of a sudden in chapter 5, John turns a corner. He changes the subject and without any notice, he begins talking about the nature and the essence and the meaning of faith. He goes from love to faith and we just kind of wonder, okay, well, what does one thing have to do with the other? What is the logical, or should I say theological, connection between love in chapter 4 and faith in chapter 5? And the answer is, get this now, here's the connection between the two chapters. Faith is the fountain from which love for God and people flow. That's the connection. Faith is the fountain from which love for God and people flow. In other words, if your faith is truly authentic, the inevitable ripple effect of that will be a, God, a love that prizes God supremely and a love that pursues the good of others sacrificially. That's the connection. You will only love people, chapter 4, if you have authentic faith in Christ, chapter 5. But you see, something that you may not know about me, and it's not too terribly important that you know this, but this is true about me, is that I love seven-layer dip. I love seven-layer dip. It is incredible. And the reason why you think about it, it has multiple layers that all complement one another in this complex blend of flavors and textures. And my point in telling you this is that John is a seven-layer theologian. What I mean is what John is saying here in verse 1 has multiple layers and levels and implications. You see, it is not simple. It is deep and complex and profound and extremely nourishing to our souls. You see, at one level of the dip, John wants you to get the connection that faith is the fountain of love. Get a load of this. At another layer of the dip, John also wants you to know that the very faith from which love flows was supernaturally created by God in the miracle of regeneration. In other words, the very faith you placed in Christ was a gift of sovereign grace and a result of the supernatural working and power of the living God. Grab your chips. We're going in. Look at verse 1 again. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born from God. That's a staggering statement. And probably the most important verse in the entirety of the Bible about, the, about regeneration, or what John calls here, being born from God. Because that's the question. What does it mean to be born from God? What is this thing called regeneration? And what it is, get this now, what it is, is God's remedy for spiritual death. 
This is what God had to do to awaken us from spiritual death and the tyranny of sin's dominion. You see, we were all born spiritually dead, slaves to sin, hearts of stone, blinded by the devil, children of wrath, under the curse of God. And what that means is that if we were ever going to believe and be saved, God was going to have to intervene. He was going to have to infringe on our self-destruction. God was going to have to intervene and break us and capture our worshiping gaze. To believe in Christ, you understand, God was going to have to ravish us and set us free from our idols by an unmatched beauty, which means, which means what we needed to believe was a miracle, a life giving, soul-awakening miracle that God had to perform for you to believe and be saved. And that is exactly what the new birth is. And you realize regeneration, new birth, has lots of titles, analogies, metaphors in the Bible that are all carefully selected to drive home the reality that being born again is a supernatural act of God that you don't control. It is for you, but it is not from you. It happens to you, it is not by you. I mean, even the very language of being born from God clobbers us with the reality that we had about as much to do with our spiritual birth as we did with our physical birth, which was nothing. You didn't ask for that. You didn't cause that. You didn't want that because you were not even a conscious being who could will or want anything non-existence cannot will itself to become a fertilized egg in the womb, which means if the new birth is anything at all, it is a sovereign work of power that only God can accomplish. That's exactly what it is. And you see, what John says here in chapter 5, verse 1, this is the bell of the ball of all regeneration passages because what John says here proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that the regeneration to our souls had to happen first or we were never going to believe. It's going to be technical, but this is so worth it. Notice first in verse 1, John's clearly describing believers here. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the divine King, the Lamb of God, God in human flesh. And yet the thing about that verb believe is that it is a present tense verb happening right now as we speak. You do currently believe that Jesus is the Christ. What is so profound, however, is that that verb born from God, get this, actually describes an action that happened in the past before you believed, which means that John reveals that being born again happened first and actually caused the faith in Christ you do now have. In other words, you have been born from God and therefore as a result of being born again, you do now believe. You see, being born from God comes first, and then comes faith as a result of the new birth, which means even the very faith we placed in Christ was a gift of sovereign grace. That's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 1.29. 
when he says it was given to you to believe. It's precisely what he says in Ephesians 2.8. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, even your faith was a gift of God so that no one may boast. Because you realize we were never going to believe on our own. Without God's intervention, we were never going to respond to the gospel in a saving way, but only with opposition. That's exactly what it means to be spiritually dead, which means regeneration. Get this, regeneration is the instantaneous awakening by God, which enabled you to see the beauty of Christ in the gospel and produced in you the very repentance and faith by which you were saved. I may be thinking, well, Jared... You're kind of cornering me here. What about my free will choice here? I mean, you're kind of making it sound like I didn't have a choice in the matter. To which I reply, regeneration is not the removal of the ability to choose. It's the removal of spiritual blindness so that we saw we had no choice left but to choose Jesus Christ. Do you hear the difference? Make no mistake, you made a real choice and a real decision, and the faith you placed in Christ was your own, and it was real, but what you did not realize is just moments before that, moments before that, although imperceptible to you at the time, God did a miracle in your soul, and had he not done that, we would have never believed and been saved. So you can smell it, can't you? This regeneration, new birth thing, this miracle that gives birth to our very faith gets to the very heart of the gospel. It does. Why? Because it is the proof that every aspect of our salvation is owing entirely to God's sovereign initiative and choice. And what that does is guarantee that God alone gets all the glory and we get all the joy. And I think we call that a win-win, do we not? But like I said, John is a seven-layer theologian. What he says has, has depth here. This is deep. His aim is deep and complex. You see, John's agenda is not merely to tell you that regeneration precedes and produces our faith, which it does, of course. Rather, his aim, get this, is to deepen the assurance of his flock by showing them that the very love that God demands, chapter 4, flows from a faith produced by God. That's the point. The very love that God demands, chapter 4, flows from a faith produced by God. In other words, the very faith and love God requires is a result of the regenerating grace of God. And what that does is give us an adrenaline shot of assurance and comfort doesn't it? But assurance of what exactly? Assurance of what? Assurance, not only that our salvation is real, but that it will not fade or fizzle out in the end. Faith, you understand, is not merely some humanly engineered work of the will of man. It isn't just that you were persuaded and figured it out on your own. I mean, you did figure it out, of course, but only after God intervened and awakened you to figure it out. 
And you see what that does is make authentic faith invincible, indomitable, and breakable. God will hold us. We will persevere to the end. Through all temptation and suffering, God will, by his word, sustain us to the very end. Because your faith, you understand, it is built to last. It doesn't come with a warranty. It comes with a guarantee. It will not expire. It's not disposable. It won't go bad because it is both created and sustained by the supernatural work and power of the living God. The point is John is using devastating theology to undergird our assurance at the deepest level possible by showing us that our faith is both created and sustained by the very power of God. Therefore, we will persevere to the end. So the question is, how is your faith this morning? How is your faith this morning? Does it help? Does it help you this morning to hear that your faith, the very faith you placed in Christ, was a miracle, a gift of sovereign grace? Does it help you, sustain you this morning to know that your faith was not a humanly engineered work of the will of man, but a result of the supernatural work and intervention of God in your life? Does that help you this morning? It must, it should. Because no matter how shaky or wobbly your faith may feel this morning, your faith is not ultimately dependent upon the buttery grip of the power of man, but on the power of God that both created and sustains our faith. Which brings us to the second element of saving faith. The second element of saving faith, number two, the results of saving faith. The results of saving faith, which is love. And here John brings us right back to the reality of love. Because as he has made so clear that authentic, supernatural, born-again faith always, always, always results in love for other people. John has made this more clear than any writer in the entirety of the Bible that the proof of life is love. That regeneration results in radical affection. That a life of self-denying, others-serving, Christ-imitating love is the undeniable evidence and proof that we have been awakened and saved by sovereign grace, which is where he goes in verses 1 through 3. Look at the text. And he says, everyone who loves the Father also loves the one who has been born from him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and when we literally do his commandments. For this is the love of God that we should keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, I, I don't like the way some people talk about the Apostle John. I get kind of defensive a little bit in my heart when I hear people, I think, kind of belittle John by saying, well, you know, John is redundant. He's repetitive. He's circular. He repeats himself. Because he is talking about love here. And, and really, in all fairness, he did already talk about love in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 
and in chapter 4. And here he is again talking about love, and yet it's not because he's having a senior moment, but because he's having a spirit-inspired moment. You see, the point is he is talking about faith in chapter 5. He's talking about faith, and yet he wants us to know, get this, this is so important, he wants us to know that the faith just commanded in chapter 4 is flows from a faith that has been awakened by sovereign grace. And again, seven-layer dip here. There's three things. There's three things about the love that John wants you to know that flows from God-awakened faith. Three things that John wants you to know about the love that flows from God-awakened faith. And they're in your notes. First, the dual object of love. The dual object of love. Look at verse 1. He says, And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one who has been born from him. Now you see it, right? The dual object of love. The love that results from God-awakened faith has but two objects of its affection, namely God and people. But did you notice the way John describes the two objects of love? Did you notice the way he described God and people? Look at what he says. And, and I know, I know that your version probably says the one who loves the Father also loves the one who has been born from him. Do you see that? But if you like controversies, conspiracies, I uncovered one in my study. Because you see, the Greek text in verse 1 doesn't actually say the Father. I mean, it's referring to the Father, but that word Father doesn't actually appear there in verse 1. Rather, the Greek actually uses another way to describe the Father. And in my research, I checked every language that I know. I looked at the German version. I read the Japanese version. I looked at modern Hebrew, and I looked at the New King James, and they all get the Greek text exactly right. But none of the English versions that we typically use get it right at all. And the reason why is because it's really awkward to translate into English. But I think we should try, because it's crucial to John's point. In fact, it is John's point. Literally, John just said this. It's clumsy, but here it is. Everyone who loves, not the Father, but the one who makes born again also loves the one who has been born from him. That's closer to the Greek. The New King James, which is a little archaic, nails it. Everyone who loves the one who begot loves the one begotten from him. Or if you wanted to smooth it out, you could put it this way. Everyone who loves the Father who regenerates also loves the one who has been regenerated by the Father. That's the idea. So do you see what John's saying? What is he saying? You can totally tell. If you truly love the God who made you and all other believers born again, then the nature of that love demands that you will also love those born again by God. That you love both the regenerator and the regenerated. That you love the begetter and you love the begotten. You see, his point is more than just, if you love God, you'll love people, which is true. But rather, his point is that the faith 
born again by God produces a love that loves both God who regenerates and those regenerated by God. You can't be born again by God and not love those born again by God. I mean, you can love the cook, but you don't have to love what he cooks. I mean, if your dad, if you loved your dad and he was a designer of Ferraris, that doesn't necessarily demand that you have to love Ferraris. There's no organic connection between those two things. But if you love the God who awakens souls from the dead, then John says, inevitably, you will love those souls who have been awakened from the dead. What's the point? The point is, John is showing at the deepest theological level that love for God and love for people is not just connected, but it is the highest possible proof that your faith is authentic and real. Which means if you don't love other believers in your church, if you feel no ownership for their spiritual growth, if there's no impulse to extend to them the love of Christ or help them treasure Christ today more than they did the day before. If you claim to love God and yet there are incessant patterns of gossip and criticism and indifferent, indifference to others, then at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you claim, John says, you don't actually love God. And you need to be born again. Because at the end of the day, everyone who loves the one who begets also loves the one who is begotten. There's a second insight about the love that flows from God-awakened faith. The second insight about love that flows from God-awakened faith, number two, the display of love for people. The display of love for people. In other words, the question that John implicitly raises is, how do we ensure and guarantee that our love for one another will not run dry. That our love for our spouse, our children, for families, for the precious souls in our congregation, how can we ensure and guarantee that our love for them will not fade or fizzle out or evaporate in the end? How do we sustain the kind of self-denying, others-serving, Christ-imitating love about which the Bible speaks? Because that kind of love is profoundly supernatural, and we do not have it within us to love in that way. The question becomes, what is the self-replenishing reservoir that results in radical love for the regenerated people in our lives? And that secret is exactly what John provides. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, by this, right here, we know that we love the children of God. How? How? When we love God and when we literally do his commandments. And there's the secret. That's the secret right there to a self-replenishing love that does not fizzle or fade in the end. And what does John say it was? He says, by this, by this thing right here, we know that we can will and do love the children of God. How can we know that, John? Look what he says. When we love God and when we do his commandments. Do, do you see him, the prerequisites that 
that produce and guarantee that we will love the children of God, there are two. There are two prerequisites, and this is so helpful for us. First, we know that we can, will, and do love the children of God, he says, when and only when we first love God. We can't and we won't love people unless we first love and treasure God above all things, he says. You see, a heart enthralled with the living God is a heart enabled to love those who have been saved by God. Which means, and this is so practical for us, but what this means is that the secret, get this now, the secret to loving other people is to have your soul clobbered by the soul-paralyzing beauty of God from the pages of Scripture. The secret to loving another person is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but to push yourselves deeper than ever into who God is. You see, we will only be as loving as our view of God is profound, which means we love other people best when we love them less than we love God himself. So if you want to grow in other people, grow in love for other people, and I know you do, then what you must do is get your soul staggered by the towering supremacy of God found in the pages of Scripture. You just go to Exodus 34, or Isaiah 6, or Isaiah 40, or Jeremiah 10, or Ezekiel 1, or Psalm 145, and you spend a month there. I'm not even kidding. You spend a month in the text reading, thinking, pondering, contemplating, meditating on the paralyzing majesty of God. And mark my words, over time your heart will begin to change towards other people. The second secret that ensures that we will love the children of God, notice, notice John says, not only when we love God, but also when we literally do His commandments. Isn't that interesting? We can, we will, and we do love the children of God when we pursue obedient lives to the commands of God. That's that's a profound insight, isn't it? In fact, get a load of this. Pursuing your own personal holiness is the most loving act that you can render Loving service that you can render to another human being. Why? Because obedience and holiness counteracts the power of sin, which is always, always driven to fixate on the self. You you understand, unrepentant sin in our lives kills the soul's capacity to love. Sin that festers in the soul makes us selfish, reclusive, critical, paranoid, distrustful, and overly self-conscious holiness, on the other hand, liberates you to love other people in the way you should. So if you want to love others with radical love and affection, and I know you do, I know you do, then you must pursue holiness and obedience to the commands of God as hard as you possibly can, because the more holy you are, the more loving you will become. So the question is, do you love the children of God? Do you love the children of God this morning? 
Do you seek their highest good, no matter the cost to yourselves? Do you own the spiritual growth of the other people in this room as your highest priority? Or, loaded question of the day, do you see in your life need-ignoring, self-exalting, risk-avoiding, record-keeping, grudge-holding, self-protecting, church-neglecting tendencies toward the people in your life? Because now you know. Now we know. Idolatry and iniquity. These are the great love killers in the church. Which brings us to the third insight about the love that results from God-awakened faith. Third on your notes there, the definition of love for God. We're still under point two. Subpoint, third subpoint, the definition of love for God. Because you understand, having just talked about Having just said that love for God liberates a life of love for other people, which is exactly what John just said, he now has to define for us exactly what it means to love God. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, For this is the love of God, that we should keep his commandments, literally be keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. There it is. That's a definition of the love for God. Because when John says the love of God, he means the love for God. And this is what love for God actually looks like in real time, actual situations. And what does it look like? What is the actual exhibit A evidence that you do love and treasure God as the prize and fountain and delight of the soul? Because it's one thing to say we love God, but it's something completely different to prove that we love God. And so what is the proof? John tells us exactly the proof of our love for God. He says, we know we love God when we keep his commandments. That's how we know. That's how we know that our love for God is real and we are not imposters is if we keep the commandments of God. Which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, the the entire discussion about whether our love for God is legitimate or counterfeit all depends on our relationship to the commandments of God. And by commands, John means scripture. He means the truth. You see, there is no discussion about authentic love for God apart from the word of God being at the center of the conversation. Why? Because the objective, verifiable way to authenticate love for God is not our feelings or our experiences, or our emotions alone, but the quality of our connection to Holy Scripture. You understand authentic, genuine treasuring of God reveals itself in the Word of God having the supreme and central place in our lives and in our affections. And yet, what does John mean when he says, keep the commandments of God? What does he mean by that? Because you know, you know that John does not mean some box-checking superficiality. You know that John does not mean some mere external conformity to a code of ethics when we would much rather be sinning. No, by keep the commandments of God, he means what Psalm 119 means by keep the commandments of God, which sounds like this. Here's Psalm, a few verses from Psalm 119. Here's what John means when he says 
commandments of God. Verse 10, with all of my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. That's what John means. Or Psalm 119, verse 35. Cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. Why? For in it I take pleasure. That's what John means by keep the commandments of God. Verse 47. I delight myself in your commandments, which I love. That's what John means. Verse 127. I love your commandments more than gold, more than much fine gold. That's exactly what John means when he says keep the commandments of God. He means them in a Psalm 119 sense, and we know that's what he means because of his little clarification at the end of verse 3. Look what he says. For this is the love of God, that we should keep his commandments. Here it is. And his commandments are not barei, burdensome. Isn't that interesting? The commandments of God, despite what we, what we might think, they're not a buzzkill. They're not a burden. They're not a bummer to us. As if they pose some threat to our freedom and joy. It's exactly the opposite. Rather, we love, we love, we love the 1,663 commands of God in the Bible. And the reason we do is because we love God himself. And John's entire point is the whole reason why we do live, love, and believe in God is precisely because God awakened our souls to do so. That's the point. So the question is this morning, do you love God? Do you love God? Do you love God as a treasure of infinite worth and beauty. Do you love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength? And if you claim that you do, can you see in your life, this is very important, can you see in your life highly imperfect, but nevertheless ever increasing patterns of joyful submission to his commands found in the word? Because that's the proof. Because you see, if God's commandments are a burden to you, if they cramp your style and get in the way of what you think will make you happy, then probably one of two things are true for you. Either one, you still believe the lie that sin can satisfy, which it doesn't, or two, you're not actually born again and you need to be saved. In which case, I call you right now to repent and yield to Christ as Lord and King and Savior and treasure of your soul. Because you see, when we yield to King Jesus in thirsty submission, we don't only get our sins forgiven, get this, we actually overcome and conquer the world itself, which is exactly what John says in the third element of saving faith. Number three, the reward of saving faith. The reward of saving faith, which is victory over the world. Because let's be totally honest here. Let's just, let's just be real. Just, just say it as we see it. 
we know we look like absolute buffoons to the world, don't we? We, we know that this whole trust in Christ, believe in the Bible thing, that looks absolutely ridiculous to the world. And we understand that. We understand what this whole faith in Christ thing looks like. But you see, what the world doesn't know and what we may not know, but what John most certainly knows is that, get this, our personal faith in Christ is one of the weapons God uses to bring the evil world system crumbling to the ground. Look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. We're almost done. He says, for or because... Everything which has been born from God conquers the world. And this is the victory which conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now you notice, you notice, I hope that the very first word of verse 4 is the word because or for. See that? Because or for. What that means is that John is supplying in verse 4 a reason and an explanation for why the commandments of God are not a burden to our soul. And why are they not? Why are the commandments of God not a burden to our soul? What reason does John give? Look again at verse 4. He says, the commandments of God are not burdensome to us. Why? Because everything born of God conquers the world. You know what that is? That's seven-layer dip right there. And that dip is really, really deep. And it's delicious. Because notice what John does here. Let's just take a step back. Look at the text as a whole. Notice what John does here. Look at the end of verse 4. John says that our faith conquered the world. In verse 5, he says that our faith in Christ conquers the world. But here, notice, at the beginning of verse 4, he says that everyone born of God conquers the world. My question is, why does he switch? Why does he switch? Why does he go from new birth conquers the world to faith conquers the world? And furthermore, how is that an explanation for why the commandments of God are not a burden to our soul? Do, do, you see, do you see what I mean by layers here? Well, grab your chips. Here we go. First, you know, you know why John switches from new birth to faith, don't you? You know exactly why he does that. Why he goes from everyone born of God conquers the world to everyone who believes conquers the world. And the reason he does is because new birth is that which gives birth to the faith that conquers the world. That's why he switches. New birth gives birth to the faith that conquers the world. Because whatever it means to conquer and overcome the world, our faith is the weapon that God uses to do so. But you see, to keep us from getting arrogant or stupid, John reminds us at the outset that the new birth was the very miracle that gave birth to our faith in the first place. Because regeneration first, then comes faith as a result of regeneration. But you see, in answer to the question, why God's commands are not a burden to the soul, it is because, get this now, here, here's his reason. Here's the reason why God's commands are not a burden. It is because regeneration produces a faith 
that conquers the world. That's why God's commands are not a burden. Because the faith that God produces in the new birth has the kind of power that not only finds his commands not a burden, but it, it overcomes, it can resist even the world to the extent that our faith is the instrument that conquers the world. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. God's commands are not a burden because the faith produced by God is the instrument that God uses to bring the evil world system crashing to the ground, which is exactly what he means by the world. He doesn't mean creation or the physical world. Rather, he means the diabolical power behind, lurking behind the scenes of everything we see and hear in the world, right? That's what John means by the world. It's that relentless sales pitch of the world. It's those God-ignoring, truth-despising, soul-destroying pleasures and pursuits promoted and pushed in everything we see. And John says, the faith that comes from the new birth beats that. Faith wins. Not only are the commands to not love the world and the things in the world not a burden to us, but even that faith is that which conquers and destroys the world. In fact, our God-awakened faith in Christ has already won. Look at verse 4. And this is the victory which, past tense, conquered the world. Our faith. It's incredible. What does it mean, past tense, conquered? What does that mean? He means, he means, get this now, the moment we were born again, and subsequently placed our faith in Christ in that moment, the sinister plot of the world to destroy our soul forever utterly failed in a pitiful defeat. I mean, think about your own conversion for a moment. You and I, we had no idea that in that moment there was a cosmic war waging behind the scenes and that when we believed in Christ, we in that moment conquered and overcame the world. Did you know that? I didn't know that till Wednesday. In Christ, it's over. We've already won. The evil powers behind the scenes that hate us and seek to destroy our soul forever have already been defeated. It is over. Why? Because in the new birth miracle, get this now, in the new birth miracle, we were awakened to the superior pleasures in Christ that triumph over the suicidal pleasures of sin offered by the world. So the question is, what in the world are you most afraid of right now? What is it in the world that you are most tempted by? What is that future prospect, unknown, unpredictable prospect in the world that you are most intimidated and terrified by? What is it out there exactly that you feel poses the greatest threat and danger to your soul? Because according to the Apostle John, the jugular vein of the world has been cut. And we are marching in the parade of a victory that has already been won. If that's the cheese, tomatoes, 
the olives, the guacamole, and the sour cream. It's in verse 5 where John gets to the beans at the bottom of the dip. Look where he goes. And notice how he, notice the, the tense he uses for the verb to conquer. I have no idea why seven-layer dip was such a deep meditation for me this week. I don't know why. Notice the tense he, he uses for the verb to conquer. And who is the one who conquers the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Did you notice the profound juxtaposition between verses 4 and 5? Did you notice the shift in the tenses of the verb? Verse 4, our faith has conquered and overcome. Verse 5, our faith does conquer and overcome. Why the switch? Why, why, the, why go from past tense to the present tense? And notice that John puts it in the form of a question because the answer is obvious. Those and only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God conquer the world. And everyone else is a sitting duck who is already dead. But you see, John switches from the past to the present tense because he wants you to know that although the outcome is secure, the battle is far from over. You see, John wants us to see that wars are fought one battle at a time. Bullets are, <laughs> battles are fought one bullet at a time. The world is conquered one Sunday at a time. One act of reconciliation at a time. One song sung at a time. One sermon preached at a time. One prayer prayed at a time. One act of obedience. One act of love at a time. One disciple made or church planted or evangelism conversation at a time. Everything we do in obedience and allegiance to Christ summarily weakens and crushes and overcomes the world. Do you see? Your faith has cosmic implications. Even this morning, when you woke up right now, what you're going to do after church has cosmic implications. And what this does, this gives us heightened motivation in evangelism, doesn't it? It totally does. Every soul that gets saved by the gospel, the monster of the world, wilts and becomes weaker and weaker. This gives us much needed perspective in our battle with sin, doesn't it? As we trust in God, the promises of God in his word against the seductions of greed and lust and fame and the lies of the American dream, we plunge the sword deeper into the heart of the world. Which means, and I close with this, which means even our personal individual faith in Christ, which looks ridiculous to the world, is one of the very weapons God uses to bring the world of darkness buckling to its knees. That's faith. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that faith is not as intangible as we had thought. We thank you, O oh Lord, that faith has an object.
Christ and it is you through your word. That faith reveals itself in true change and life transformation. We understand, O oh Lord, that, that our faith, although we were responsible to believe, we understand that our faith was brought into existence by a sovereign miracle that you performed in our souls. And we thank you for that. What can we say? What can we say to that other than, I can't believe you did that? I can't believe you, you, you awakened me. I can't believe you, you opened my eyes to see, Lord. Lord, now we understand that faith, our faith has cosmic implications. And every act of obedience, every act of trust, every gospel conversation with an unbeliever, oh Lord, that is your means of progressing, progressively destroying and killing the world. Thank you for what faith is. Lord, we cry out with that poor man in the gospel of Mark. I believe. Help my unbelief. Sustain us. Strengthen us. Give us the love and courage we need to live lives that put you on display. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray.